Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Lady Lazarus. I have done it again. One year in every ten I manage it. A sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight. My face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, O oh my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I. Can you deny the nose, the eye pits? The full set of teeth, the sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me, and I a smiling woman. I'm only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. This shocking, startling poetry could only come from Sylvia Plath. Read here by the poet herself in 1962, a few short months before she took her life on a cold February night. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot. The big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone, I may be Japanese. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle that knocks me out. In this poem, Lady Lazarus, Plath describes the peanut-crunching crowd fascinated by her suicide attempts, fascinated equally by her ability to bring herself back to life, to come back from the brink of death and despair. Her audience is voyeuristic, and yet she finds herself putting on a show for them, even as she doubts the miracle of her continual resurrections. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. 
So, so, Herr Doctor. So, Herr Enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable. The pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir, flesh, bone. There is nothing there, a cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Hear God, hear Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. This poem has always made me uncomfortable, in part because I am part of that peanut-munching crowd. I have been obsessed with and fascinated by Sylvia Plath ever since I discovered her dark and brilliant novel The Bell Jar and her raw, rhythmic poetry. I always think of Plath this time of year, in part because her poetry is eerie and off-putting and just right for October, but also because her birthday is October 27th, just days shy of All Hallowtide, the triduum of All Saints Eve, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day, that special time of year when we remember and pray for the dead. On today's podcast, we'll learn about Sylvia Plath's life, her art, and how we can remember her as an artist, an intellectual, a mother, and ultimately a fellow human being. I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. On this podcast, we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. Through meditations, discussions, interviews, music, soundscapes, I hope that I encourage you to read more, listen more, explore more. Just stay in a place of gratitude and curiosity. My blog and this podcast was inspired by a quote credited to St. Gregory the Great. We make idols of our concepts, but wisdom is born of wonder. I was uh, brought up on, on the um, northern coast of, of Massachusetts, and my whole childhood was spent on the ocean. I remember the, the very spectacular hurricanes we used to have, where my grandmother's cellar would be flooded and there would be sharks washed up in the garden and so forth. And the image of the sea has been with me ever since, even though I've, I've um, been inland for a few years and I think one always goes back to to something as vivid and colorful as this sort of experience and I know that the sea comes into um, a great many of my poems sometimes it's just a a subconscious sea a sort of flow of thoughts and so on other times it's the real sea itself I just thought I would uh, let Sylvia introduce herself a little bit there. One of the uh, amazing things about the internet is that you can get on YouTube and listen to all kinds of interviews with Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, her ex-husband, and about their marriage and their writing life. And also we have a fair number of the famous aerial poems uh, recorded as well. So um, like that one Lady Lazarus that I played to start the episode. Um, of course, there's Daddy, uh, her most famous poem is recorded, uh, along with Tulips and um, some other uh, poems that I will play throughout this episode. I think it's just amazing to hear in her own voice, her own work and about her own life. So if you are not familiar with Sylvia Plath, um, maybe the only thing you know about her is that uh, she killed herself. This is her claim to fame for a lot of people and especially in popular culture. Um, she, uh, she died when she was only 30 years old 
and uh, she had two small children, was separated from her husband, also a poet named Ted Hughes. And uh, in the last months of her life, the last year or so, um, she was living in a flat in London uh, that was formerly occupied by William Butler Yeats, uh, which meant a lot to her to be sort of living in this place that this amazing poet that she so admired lived. Uh, and in the wake of this very messy separation, um, in which uh, Ted Hughes guilty of all kinds of infidelity and according to her possibly even abuse and other things. I have complicated thoughts about Ted Hughes. I've read a great biography about him and I actually admire a lot of his poetry and I think with a lot of these things it's much more complicated than um, we could be led to believe and certainly um, as it was portrayed by a lot of uh, a lot of Sylvia Plath fans in the decade or two after her death uh, Ted Hughes was really vilified. Um, people would go to her grave and scratch out, you know, it said Sylvia Plath Hughes and they would scratch out the Hughes. Um, her notoriety is really, um, is is linked to, to this suicide and then um, the poetry that she was creating in this sort of frenzy, uh, frenzy of creativity, frenzy of depression and uh, mania and uh, just these incredibly, incredibly intense poems um, that weren't published uh, until two years after she died and actually were 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 collected uh, by Hughes and he made sure that they were published and uh, and that the world sort of saw what she had created. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting to think what she would have gone on to create, but this small volume of poetry, uh, the collection Ariel, really... Uh, made her mark in 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 poetic uh, artistic history, and um, she had another collection before that, the Colossus and other poems, which is also a very fascinating collection. Um, but she is just a fascinating person. Um, I'll just give you a little backstory about my my own re uh, relationship with Sylvia Plath. Um, she has this reputation, you know, for appealing to sort of angsty teenage girls with literary aspirations. So enter Teenage Katie, and uh, she really, really appealed to me. I was absolutely enamored with her. Um, I read The Bell Jar and sort of spent whole afternoons thinking these wildly romantic, sad thoughts about existence and um, wrote a lot of troubled poetry myself, mimicking um, Mad Girl's Love Song, which was sort of my favorite poem from her Juvenalia collection. Um, I, you know, loved and hated Ted Hughes, who was sort of this hulking Heathcliff type figure. I thought he was very romantic and tragic and the whole thing, the whole thing was just, you know, dripping with, with uh, all sorts of details that a teenage girl would find fascinating. And then when I went to college, I uh, read the unabridged journals of Sylvia Plath. And I also read uh, the collection Letters Home, which is um, all the letters that she wrote to her mother Aurelia while she was away at college. So the combination of reading those two things, I just was so immersed in her life. And I was immersed in her life at at sort of the same time. I was reading a lot about when she was in college at Smith and I just sort of felt like I was was friends with this person. I felt like I understood her. I felt like she understood me somehow. And um, I was I was really obsessed with her. So when my husband and I, we got a grant, shout out to St. Mary's College of Maryland for funding an artistic project. They actually paid us to stay on campus for a summer and research poetry. So that's amazing. Liberal arts college education, fantastic. Um, we uh, spent the whole summer researching uh, confessional poets, which Sylvia Plath is probably the most famous of, of the confessional poets, this sort of new 
literary movement in which uh, we moved away from from sort of the the idea of uh, abstract ideas and nature poetry and the sublime and um, things like that to the personal, the intensely personal confessional poetry. Um, so we focused on four poets. If you go back a few episodes, you'll hear my husband and I chatting about John Berryman, who is one of the poets we looked at. We also looked at Robert Lowell, and then we looked at Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, and we looked at the way that they used Jewish identity in their poetry. Uh, none of them were Jewish, and they used it uh, sort of as a way, uh, a cathartic way of claiming a victim status. You have to remember this is right in the wake of World War II, so, um, and you've heard here in Lady Lazarus the way she used uh, Nazi imagery and uh, Jewish identity to sort of um, conflate with her own her own mental illness, which you know there are certainly problematic things about that um, that we went into in this project. But anyway, in the course of doing this, uh, we were able to visit Smith College uh, plus alma mater, and we're really shocked that with some sort of bumbling explanations about the research project, we were given access to the whole Plath archives and I touched her diary pages, her sketches, her drafts. We were just given completely uninhibited access. I don't know if they would do that today. I don't know what we said uh, that that gave us that opportunity, but it was truly amazing. And when we studied abroad in England, um, Chris had this great idea to go visit um, the apartment that she lived in. and it was like a pilgrimage for me. It was amazing uh, to be there where she where she lived and worked and uh, ultimately where she died. So you can see that um, I've certainly had my, my fair share of Plath obsession. I've read, I think, five or six biographies of her. There are a lot of biographies. I have to recommend wholeheartedly the most recent biography by Heather Clark, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. I wrote a whole long review about it on the blog. I will link to it. Can't recommend that biography enough. It is really beautifully written and probably the most uh, thorough, well-researched, and fair biography uh, that I have read of Sylvia Plath. Um, With sort of a lot of the mythology around Plath, you can get caught up in in a lot of hearsay and... um, People, people, all we all carry our own image of her, really, and I think a lot of biographers have unfortunately been way too invested in their own image of her and not looked at who she was herself and also not given her poetry its fair due with sort of this fascinating um, macabre life, I suppose. Um, people can get really hung up on that and sort of forget about the quality and intensity and artistic merit of her poetry, which I think that Clark does really, uh, really well. She really goes into her poetry and ties it in well with her life. Um, That's what's complicated about confessional poetry is you can't really understand the poetry without understanding the life of the artist. So I do want to introduce you to a few of Plath's poems. Uh, Again, the fact that we have her reading them is just amazing. So I will... um, I'll play for us uh, a portion here of her reading, Daddy. You, you can listen to the whole thing online. I'll put a, a link in the show notes, but um, this will give you an idea. It's a really interesting poem because she's using sort of a sing-song nursery rhyme cadence uh, to describe this a very complex relationship with her father, um, who, if you know anything about Sylvia Plath, you know she had a very complex relationship with her father in real life who died when she was a child. And uh, in the poem, poem, he really takes on this sort of Nazi quality. He actually was German in real life, um, 
we don't really know how much she's sort of archetyped him uh, out of out of who he really was as a person, who Autoplath was as a person. But this is a very very intense poem and um, and very fun to listen to because of the sing song way that uh, that she she uses her rhymes and her rhythm here in the poem and the way she reads it. So I'll just play a bit for for us here of Sylvia Plath's Daddy. You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or her chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root, I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eeh, 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 eeh. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. So we definitely hear in this poem uh, that complicated identifying with uh, with the Jewish experience during World War II, during the Holocaust uh, that I mentioned earlier. This is a really powerful poem. I recommend reading it and uh, listening to it as well. Uh, another poem I want to introduce you to is Tulips. It's a poem that she wrote when she was in the hospital or after she was in the hospital for an appendectomy. And she was sort of enjoying the, uh, the you know, the white wall numbness of the hospital. She had a very complicated relationship with institutions. Uh, she was she was institutionalized um, for mental illness after her first uh, first official suicide attempt when she was uh, when she was in college and uh, and had a very difficult experience, electroshock therapy, all sorts of things, and really kind of lived in fear of, of being institutionalized again. And there are all sorts of theories about what was going on at the end of her life and if part of what she was trying to avoid was another institutionalization. But I digress. Um, in any case, she had a complicated relationship because in a way she also sort of longed to uh, have the opportunity to check out of the world. Sylvia Plath was incredibly, incredibly ambitious. She worked very, very hard. She was top student at Smith. Uh, she had a Fulbright scholarship to Cambridge, which is where she ended up meeting Ted Hughes, and she would end up living in England uh, after that. Uh, she was always, always incredibly ambitious, wanted to be one of the great writers of, of, of the century, wanted to rub elbows with uh, T.S. Eliot and, and Robert Lowell and people like that, which she did. Uh, but also she was often doing that through uh, her husband, through Ted Hughes, who was really the the famous poet during her lifetime. And of course, now she has really eclipsed him in fame. But um, 
And uh, I know there are all sorts of debates about who was the better poet, but they really influenced each other a lot. Uh, and and whatever else happened in their marriage were incredibly uh, serious editors and critics and supporters of each other's work. But in any case, this poem, Tulips, was written after she uh, received uh, like a gift of flowers in the hospital, and it sort of interrupted this, uh, this death-like numbness that she was enjoying while in the hospital. I didn't want any flowers. I only wanted to lie with my hands turned up and be utterly empty. How free it is. You've no idea how free. The peacefulness is so big it dazes you. And it asks nothing. A name tag, a few trinkets. It is what the dead close on, finally. I imagine them shutting their mouths on it like a communion tablet. So as I mentioned, there are lots and lots of uh, audio clips uh, available on YouTube if you want to do some more research, if you want to learn more about Sylvia Plath. Again, the biography I would recommend is Heather Clark's biography of Sylvia Plath. She especially gives a really um, sort of startling, raw, and I think very accurate portrait of of Plath's uh, last few months. Uh, and it, this was actually, for, for all my sort of obsession with Sylvia Plath and all the reading I did about her, when I read this biography last year, it was really the first time I truly felt sort of the tragedy of her suicide. I mean, we're so distant from it now, and we sort of say, oh, that's a shame. It's very sad. Uh, we sort of mythologize it. We're interested in it. Uh, but when you're invested in an 800-plus uh, page biography, and you've really gotten to know this person in, in a deep way, you really feel uh, f- feel this as such an avoidable loss, which is, which is really, um, it is such a tragedy. Uh, there's so much mythology around Plath and about the aerial poems and how they were sort of written in the white high glare of suicidal intention and uh, many people are say would it have even been possible for her to write these poems uh, if she hadn't uh, been basically on the brink of uh, of uh, inevitable destruction and um, Clark really casts uh, doubt on this narrative um, she says up until the very week of her death Plath was making long-term plans she was signing contracts with the BBC planning vacations with friends looking into a new nanny for the children she was working on a new novel Uh, She'd also signed a five-year contract on her apartment uh, and was hoping to buy the entire building and rent out flats. So this really doesn't sound like somebody who was sort of inevitably going to fall into despair. Um, Was she unstable? Absolutely. Um, Her separation from Hughes uh, had challenged all her assumptions about her own life. You have to think about uh, back back in the the time she was living in 1962, only 2% of households in England were headed by single mothers. And she was a single mother with two small children and a very public separation and divorce going on. Uh, So she was alienated. She was humiliated. And she also had uh, really sort of had this great, great dream of herself as having this uh, epic literary artistic marriage and had all sorts of uh, mythology she had built up around her idea of what this marriage would be like. So uh, per Clark's research, it really seems like as I mentioned earlier, that it might have been that threat of institutionalization that made her feel like she had no way out. She was really suffering from PTSD after those mismanaged shock treatments uh, in the 1950s. And uh, she really didn't trust psychiatric care. And it was it was uh, it was a dark time, really, for people with mental illness. And um, it seems like maybe now we can say that she probably had some form of postpartum depression. Um, she was on sort of a cocktail of medication and 
it, it was just a, it was, it was a lot of things going on at once. I don't think though that we have to say it was inevitable that uh, she was going to, going to, to kill herself. And uh, I think that it's a real tragedy that she did and that we should mourn her uh, as a human being, not just as, uh, as a note of fascination in literary history. It's interesting to note that in the original Ariel manuscript, how she wanted the uh, manuscript to end was with the poem Wintering, which is actually a very optimistic poem. Uh, I'll just read you the last stanza of, of the poem Wintering. Will the hive survive? Will the gladiolas succeed in banking their fires to enter another year? What will they taste of the Christmas roses? The bees are flying, they taste the spring. So actually the last words of the aerial collection are spring and bees had such an amazing symbolic meaning to her. Her father was a beekeeper. Um, she has a lot of bee poems. So this was a really, really uh, meaningful poem clearly. And I think that it's an optimistic note that she ends this incredible collection with. And I think that that's important to keep in mind. If you're interested also, there are some amazing poems that Ted Hughes wrote called Birthday Letters, uh, which is all about his relationship with Sylvia Plath. Uh, they're, they're, they're very different from any of his other poetry, which is really dense and symbolic. These are, these are very personal poems. Um, he writes some, some, really, uh, some really sad, really beautiful, beautiful um, lines about their life together. Here's just a little bit from a poem he wrote called Last Letter. What can I tell you that you do not know of the life after death? Dropped from life, we three made a deep silence in our separate cots. We were comforted by wolves. Under that February moon and the moon of March, the zoo had come close. And in spite of the city, wolves consoled us. Two or three times each night for minutes on end, they sang. They had found where we lay, and the dingoes and the Brazilian-maned wolves all lifted their voices together with the gray northern pack. The wolves lifted us in their long voices. They wound us and enmeshed us in their wailing for you. Their mourning for us, they wove into their voices. We lay in your death, in the fallen snow, under falling snow. As my body sank into the folk tale, where the wolves are singing in the forest for two babes who have turned in their sleep, into orphans beside the corpse of their mother. So some really sad, powerful lines there. Um, Ted Hughes writing about sort of the reality of um, taking care of their two small children in the wake of their mother's death. So I just wanted to to leave uh, leave us with with a poem that I found really personally meaningful, which is called uh, Nick and the Candlestick. Uh, when she when she introduced this poem, when she read it on the BBC, I'll play, I'll play the audio of, of her reading it. She, she introduced it by saying, in this poem, a mother nurses her baby son by candlelight and finds in him a beauty, which while it may not ward off the world's ills, does redeem her share of it. So Sylvia Plath had really complicated feelings about motherhood. She also often resented her children for the way they kept her from her work. She felt like, you know, she was sort of drowning in um, domestic tasks and resented, uh, of course, her her separation and the downfall of her marriage. She was very much alone and uh, she had a hard time with it. But she also wrote some really beautiful, beautiful poetry about her children and uh, would, would call them the redemption of her life. So I, I also 
think about how it's it's been written many times that the 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 police that came and found her after after they found her body noted with what care she sealed off the children's room she left them with um with sandwiches and milk and uh she 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 stuffed the door with with towels um before turning on turning on the oven and the gas so um I don't I, I think she I think she really loved her children and uh I, I could really relate to her at this moment in my life because I'm actually now I realized when I thought about her birthday she was turning 30 in October she would um, take her life the following February so we're the same age now and um, I have a small child and I, she had small children and uh, we both have artistic passions and uh, there's just so much that I feel like I've lived life through Sylvia Plath, and uh, she means a lot to me as a person. So um, I'm going to end the episode with with her reading Nick and the Candlestick, which is which is a lovely poem she wrote about her son Nicholas. But I did also want to just touch on this idea of All Hollow Tide, which is probably you know it as Halloween really is what we're thinking of Um, but this is a really really beautiful time of year Um, it's a time of year to go hang out in a graveyard uh, not in a macabre way but in a way in a memento mori way Uh, remember you must die this is a tradition in the church that um, goes back a long long time a lot of middle ages people were wearing skull rings long before goth kids were um, (laughs) uh, because they thought it was important to to remember that all of us, no matter who we are, are all marching toward the grave, and uh, to look at this as a as a unifying um, a, a unifying thing that that we are all all going to meet the same same fate, and instead of sort of despairing over this, it's an opportunity for unity and compassion, and an opportunity to uh, to pray for people's souls. So I wrote a post uh, last year or two years ago, maybe now, um, about how I have mass offered for Sylvia Plath, and you can read about that. I will put a, a note in the show notes. You can read that what I wrote about that. But I think that that's a beautiful tradition, and it's a beautiful way, um, whether it's an artist or a celebrity or someone who just means something to you from afar, uh, a way for us to remember our shared humanity and that these are not just uh, people to be consumed as entertainment or as a, as a source of sort of, in Sylvia's case, certainly as like macabre fascination, but as a complicated individual human being who had hopes and dreams and was a, a friend, a mother, a lover, a wife, a just a person like like you and me and that it's important to to remember that and I think that this time of year and sort of the unity of our shared mortality can be a beautiful way to remember that after Sylvia reads us Nick in the candlestick I will have the dance macabre play us out and I will try to include all these videos and music and everything in the show notes uh if I leave anything out please feel free to email me at bornofwonder.com and while you're online um please think about leaving a review for the podcast. Some people have been leaving some recent reviews. Uh, if you leave a comment, uh, it's so great. It means so much to me personally. So great for the podcast. Can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for listening and following along. Happy All Hallowtide. Happy fall. Happy Halloween. I hope you are enjoying this amazing, spooky, introspective, wonderful time of year. I'm Katie Marquette. You've been listening to Born of Wonder. The candle gulps and recovers its small altitude, its yellows hearten. Oh, love, how did you get here? Oh, embryo, remembering even in sleep your crossed position.
The blood blooms clean in you, Ruby. The pain you wake to is not yours. Love, love, I have hung our cave with roses, with soft rugs, the last of Victoriana. Let the stars plummet to their darker dress. Let the mercuric atoms that cripple drip into the terrible well. You are the one solid the spaces lean on, envious. You were the baby in the barn. Here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. 